transit fare increase is tarragon for now. This week, against the advice of City Council, City Council elects not to raise transit cash fares. Plus, City Council argues with City Council in letters to City Council. We'll tell you what City Council said. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 126, where spring is here and there is a group of 15 magpies in a tree outside my house. They're angry and there's a dead crow on the street. I don't know what any of this means. I'm not an ornithologist, which I think (laughs) is a bird doctor or something like that. Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah, but just be careful out there. There's a pandemic, but there's also the birds. On to the rapid fire. Local greenhouses are warning that Edmontonians might not find all the plants and flowers they want this summer due to supply chain shortages. The shortage comes after the extreme cold snap in Texas this winter. The city is reminding residents, however, not to worry, because even if they miss out on purchasing plants this year, the city will compensate by not mowing the grass in parks, which should balance out residents' greenery requirements. Retail experts are suggesting that West Edmonton Mall's ostentatious attractions, in addition to retail, form a blueprint for successful shopping centers. In an interview with CBC, prominent retail analysts suggest that the attraction-based malls owned by Triple Five Group are likely to see success post-pandemic, with retail-only malls continuing to see declines. This is good news for the struggling Edmonton City Centre Mall, previously a mall that was mostly retail with a small movie theatre, but just last year removed an entire floor of stores in order to install its first major attraction, a parking lot. The Alberta government is releasing a call for grant proposals in order to teach students better money management. The program, with $1 million total up for grabs, is searching for organizations that can help schools provide financial literacy programming. Said Education Minister Adriana Lagrange, for too long our schools have not taught our kids how to run their households like a government. And it shows. When I realized we could fix this problem for so cheap, it was a no-brainer. $1 million is less than a tenth of 1% of the typical $1.7 billion in accounting errors in a UCP budget. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. With Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode... Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a pod power shout out to Book Women, a podcast about editing, publishing, and writing Indigenous stories. Three Métis librarians representing nations from across the homeland aim to inspire Indigenous peoples to share their stories in whatever form that they enjoy. Guests include Indigenous storytellers from diverse mediums like podcasting, burlesque, books, comics, social media, films, music, and everything in between. You can find out more and listen to Book Women at bookwomenpodcast.ca. So this week, Edmonton City Council, in a 12-1 decision, voted to freeze transit fares until 2022. This comes after last week there was a 3-0 unanimous committee decision to recommend that we increase transit fares from 350 to 375. Smack, what gives? What's going on here? This is a bit confusing. So the committee, executive committee, recommended this increase because they had previously agreed to do this. This was something that 
council had uh, agreed a couple of years ago to this schedule, and it was scheduled to go up in February. Uh, Non-cash fares did go up in February. They delayed uh, the cash fare for this decision, but they said, no, we're facing revenue um, concerns because of the pandemic. We, we think we do need to stick with this cash fare increase. And so that's what we thought was going to happen. And we get to city council where they are voting on the recommendation and Councillor Henderson brings forward a motion to defer it, basically saying that um, because we're going to have smart fare options, it makes sense to wait until that's in place. And the motion certainly makes sense because part of the selling point of the cash fare increase is, well, it'll be cheaper for smart fare users, which of course can't exist right now because smart fare allegedly is coming soon, but who knows? It might never be here. Right. The thing that was really confusing to me about the story is we've had council override the will of committee before. It's not typical, but it happens. You know, different people sit on committee and new information can come forward. But what was really interesting is that three members of committee who had voted last week to approve the fair increase and continue with the fee schedule have all reversed their vote. None of the three that voted in favor at committee, Iveson, McKean, and Cartmel, continued to vote yes this week. Yeah, and I don't know why exactly. I mean, I suppose uh, Councilor Henderson made a convincing argument at council and they decided, well, this is more creative than we could have come up with at committee last week. I don't know. What's your take? I think what happened was they looked at the politics of it and said, we're not going to be stupid this week. The amount we're talking about is $473,000. Like, sure, for you or I, that's a significant chunk of change, but in the scope of a $3 billion operating budget, that's really nothing at all. And City Council was taking huge body blows from people on the left, like Free Transit Edmonton, like homeless and shelter support groups, all these groups that are typically representing the less fortunate, the people of lower incomes, people experiencing poverty. And to just give them a body blow at the lowest point of a pandemic when transit usage is already down, over $473,000, I think it just became overwhelmingly clear that let's not do this. Let's just not. That's the projected revenue from that 25 cent increase. So they're going to take that from the reserve fund in order to cover that. It's interesting what you say about political because essentially they handed Free Transit Edmonton a big win. I think they put out a statement right away basically saying like, we did it. (laughs) I have some questions with how we got here though, because this is another case where administration is framing this discussion in a way that biases towards the obvious decision that administration wants, which is just to increase the fee schedule, but doesn't really represent reality. Administration keeps talking about budget shortfalls and the amounts that we're missing. This was to increase a fare. We're not losing money by doing this. We're just not making more money. I think you're right. It's just that they budget in advance. And so that number is already on the books. And so, you know, if they don't have this, they've got to move the money around like they did. But we've seen clearly time and time again in the pandemic that that is something that both city administration and council can do. Free Transit Edmonton, Councillor Paquette, a few of the people that spoke to this, really framed this as not kind of what you're saying, which is like, well, it's not that much money, we might as well not do it. It was really about addressing inequality. Paige Gorsak from Free Transit Edmonton said, you know, we're glad to see council did the right thing and uh, said there's still much more work to be done to create a truly equitable city. But this win against an unjust fee hike shows that when communities organize, 
we win. I think one really other interesting aspect of the framing of this discussion was, and we talked about this last week, where Councillor Paquette in the discussions had said, quote, we're really in a tight spot. This year, there's no way that taxes can be raised to raise that money. And we have to raise fares a modest amount to help cover some of this cost. And it really got me wondering why. Like, we've accepted this line of argument as, okay, well, we need to raise fares a modest amount to to help cover this cost. But why do we need to do that? We have a set of policies that set fares. And the transit fare policy, it's uh, policy C451H. It is very ambiguous, and it says, quote, the target range for the revenue cost ratio is between 40% and 45% of operating costs for the Edmonton Transit Service Branch. The policy itself is at eh, around like 40 to 45%. If we're off, eh, whatever, dollars and cents, and it should just be absorbed. It doesn't make sense to me that like there's this hyper focus on how much comes from fares and how much comes from subsidies, especially when it's a budget and we're going into a year where we've seen, you know, 50, 60% swings on transit usage, how could we know precisely to $473,000 how much we're going to spend next year on transit? And why does this discussion matter that much? It reminds me of of something that I heard somebody say today in the People's Agenda session about, you know, these big big issues that council has. Things like end poverty Edmonton. We have this big picture objective, this big picture goal. And then when we try to implement that and we try to turn it into actions, it gets to council and and she points out that they often talk about these very specific things in isolation as if they have no connection to that bigger goal. And so if we want to shift people's transportation modes, when we want to make transit more desirable and attractive for use, we want to end poverty and make it more cost efficient for people, more fair and more equitable for them to get around the city. It, it makes it seem like, well, 25 cents, of course we shouldn't do that. We have these other bigger goals that are aligned with keeping fares as low as possible. But that's not how the conversation comes up at council. It comes up as we have a $473,000 hole in the budget. Should we fill it or should we not? Let's switch gears from the policy part of talking about city council to the part everyone loves the drama the stuff that you'd see on house of cards or the west wing or i don't know cory in the house the tv-esque politics and that came to a head this week in the most edmonton city council way instead of you know assassinations and alleys and political intrigue there were a series of letters written and published letters these are Interesting things. Mayor Don Iveson wrote a letter basically saying he had serious concerns over unscheduled tours by members of EPS, the police service, and city councillors to Tipinawa, temporary shelter that's been set up at the Edmonton Convention Center. And Post Media, the journal, reported on that last week. And then this week, uh, we saw that two councillors uh, wrote a letter in response. So Councillor Hamilton and Councillor Carmel, who are, of course, the two city councillors that serve on the Edmonton Police Commission, uh, responded to the mayor's letter, basically saying that he made them look bad. Yeah, and it was interesting because the response letter is quite scathing. It at one point calls for an unreserved apology from the mayor for how he characterized members of Edmonton City Council. But I don't know that it actually refutes any of the claims in the mayor's letter. One of the big claims in the mayor's letter is that, you know, 
EPS and these counselors showed up at the shelter not wearing proper PPE and made uh, people in the shelter feel uncomfortable because of that. And in the response letter, there's no mention of PPE whatsoever. If they were wearing masks, it could have been a quick throwaway line. And the letter's not short. It's two and a half pages. They have plenty of space to refute claims, but they don't bother refuting the claim about PPE, among other things, which makes me wonder, well, was the mayor right about this? And the response letter is just counselors getting mad about being called out? Yeah, the thing that they do spend quite a bit of time in the letter arguing against is this you know, idea that the mayor had in his letter, which is that there's nothing to be gained in terms of knowledge by surprising agency workers and showing up under these high stress conditions. And they take pains in their letter to say that, you know, they requested access and, and uh, a tour and that it's important for them to be informed and be educated. And, and so that's the part of it that they took issue with, not so much the other allegations, or they didn't refute the other allegations, as you point out. I think the other thing that they took issue with is while the counselors didn't have access to the shelter, the mayor did have a tour of the shelter and they right. felt that wasn't quite fair. Yeah, they wanted to get their own tour. They wanted to see themselves. And, and you know, they said we're gravely concerned about the message this sends to people who are partners. And they, they took issue with the tone of his letter and the, quote, conspicuous leak to the media. Let's talk about conspicuous leaks, because how did we get access to this response letter? As far as we know... Mike Nickel. So Councillor Nickel posted this letter on April 22nd at like 7.45 in the morning. Uh, the journal reported on it later in the day, but he posted the full letter. And that's the first place we saw it. And the full letter addressed to Edmonton City Council. So as far as we can tell, I mean, sure, Iveson's letter did get broadly published, but I don't know that Iveson sent it to the media um, he sent this letter to the police commission and to city council outlining his grave concerns. The two councillors, councillors Cartmel and Hamilton, who sit on the police commission, as far as we can tell, sent a letter back to city council and CCing the police commission so that the relevant parties know, hey, you know, this is our rebuttal. And on both sides, it leaked to the media. And I think the one conspicuous absence in both of the letters is I think what both of these letters are actually about. I don't know that Don Iveson was necessarily upset about the EPS visits and the counselor visits as much as he was upset that it was Mike Nickel doing it and he was doing it for political points because this visit preceded his grandstanding in council about minimum standards for shelters and undermining the end poverty Edmonton strategy as it exists. Mm. It's this politicking by Mike Nickel that the letter seemed to want to be a rebuke for. Iveson's letter seemed pretty clearly to me a shot across the bow at Mike Nickel. The response very clearly to me read as, hey, look, we're getting caught in the crossfire here. It ain't us. But of course, Mike Nickel shared the response letter as these counselors hit the bullseye. So you have Mike Nickel again, sort of like eluding consequences for his actions while making the rest of city council who's trying to abide by the rules, trying to appear above it all, sort of looking like they're in the mud because of it. And I'm sure this brings nothing but joy to Mike Nickel. I don't know that I want to call Mike Nickel a winner, but if I was to pick a winner or loser in this exchange, I'd say the winner probably is Mike Nickel. Uh, Iveson doesn't come out looking great in this because even if he was correct, you know, he got called out by members of the city council 
Hamilton and Cartmel. I don't know that they end up looking great because they're on the police commission and they're sort of unreservedly defending this police interaction at the shelter that Iveson alleged wasn't necessarily safe or wanted. So, you know, especially with the defund the police, with the Black Lives Matter movement, with all these conversations ongoing, it doesn't look great either. I think the only person that comes out looking better than they looked before is Mike Nickel. And that's only because he had a very low bar to clear there. Uh, One last question I want to ask you about the letter. What do you make of them quoting Aristotle? Grow up, guys. (laughs) All I can say is if you're quoting Aristotle unironically... You're trying too hard. Counselors, if you want advice on how to write letters, feel free to send me an email. I I do some consulting work. I think one way that Mike Nickel didn't come out looking so good this week is part of his whole shtick, his whole selling point is that, you know, Edmonton's bad for business because people will just go to the counties. And if we don't rock bottom our property taxes and put our potholes back in our roads so we can afford these tax cuts, then we're going to fall behind on the business community. And I think there was a pretty good remedy to that, I'd say false narrative, but to that narrative this week. Right. So this week, uh, 13 municipalities in the Edmonton region signed another memorandum of understanding. They've done this many times, but a new one for something called the Collaborative Economic Development Initiative. And when I first came across this, it was very confusing to me because All of the language that they use sounds like Edmonton Global. The website and the news release was hosted at the St. Albert, the city of St. Albert's website, which is a bit strange. So we dug into it and we figured out what this is all about. And essentially, the mayor uh, told me that this is the third and final pillar of this report that came out back in 2016 about the future of Metro Edmonton and how we were going to, you know, grow the region and attract investment. And he said there was three things that this report pointed out that we needed. So one was economic development. And he says, well, we did that. We created Edmonton Global a few years ago to focus on economic development. The second thing we needed was regional transit. And we've now more or less done that. We have a regional transit services commission that is spinning up this year. Strathcona County notwithstanding. Not yet. And then the third thing was land use and infrastructure. And that one sounds very vague, but really it's something that's been going on at the Edmonton Metropolitan Region Board called Shared Investment, Shared Benefit. So the long and short of it is what essentially has happened is these 13 municipalities have now agreed that they will co-invest and potentially outside their own borders. So the city of Spruce Grove and the city of St. Albert might invest along with Sturgeon County for something that makes that location more attractive so that they can win this investment and they can attract a business into the region. And then if they do win that deal, they will all get a proportional share of the tax revenue that results. Whereas right now, if somebody comes to the region, a business comes to the region, they choose to go to, say, Parkland County, only Parkland County benefits from that. The other municipalities that all might want to host that business are kind of losing out on that potential revenue. And what that leads us to is a situation where you have communities fighting against one another. They all have different cost structures, different regulations, different permitting. Some of them will even offer incentives. And it makes it really confusing to potential investors who just want to come to the region and don't really want to have to figure out which of the specific municipalities they should go to. They want to decide based on what's the best location. So the whole idea here is to eliminate that infighting, 
and uh, make these municipalities work together to win these deals. And and as I've said on this podcast before, I think the mayor's legacy, Mayor Don Iverson's legacy is the region, not transit. And I think this solidifies it. So clarify something for me. Did we just annex the 13 municipalities? Well, not exactly. No, <laughs> certainly not technically or anything like that. But I mean, what I think you're getting at is that if some organization or business or an investor or something is looking at the region, Edmonton is the attractor. That is the largest center of gravity in the region, of course. And and actually, you know, the mayor and, and uh, previous uh, representatives for the city of Edmonton, I guess you could say, have pointed out that it's unfair that uh, businesses come to the region because of Edmonton, really, but they get located maybe in one of the industrial areas, but they still use Edmonton roads and infrastructure. They come for the festivals and all the, you know, the, the quality of life reasons uh, why the region is such a great place to live, but they don't pay anything in taxes and they don't, you know, the city of Edmonton doesn't benefit from any of that. And so this is a way now that they will be able to benefit from that. It basically remedies the refinery row just outside of city of Edmonton's borders and very lucrative, very positive for Strathcona County. Not so much for Edmonton. Yeah, I mean, this is a project by project basis. So, I mean, it's conceivable that, but that some of that stuff will still happen and some of that will go on. But you have to imagine that for you know some of the bigger opportunities that the region might be trying to land, the things that Edmonton Global is working on, you know, they're looking at a few different options throughout the region. And this will allow us to collectively come up with the best one that's going to get them to say yes and sign on the dotted line. So, I mean, hopefully it'll at least diminish that and it'll mean that the default, hopefully, is collaboration between these different municipalities rather than you know, competition and trying to undercut one another. So you said they signed a memorandum of understanding on this final pillar. What's next? Is it done? Do we need to pass some bylaws? What's the next step? Each of the municipalities now needs to work on implementing this. And so the administration for each of them is going to be working together to figure out exactly how to take this forward. Um, they've confirmed to us that it's not going to result in another new organization. So there isn't a another Edmonton Global or another Transit Commission or something like that. This is, this is about making changes within each municipality that are aligned. And so uh, I think a very real possibility is we get to see some bylaw changes or some policy and procedure amendments, things like that. Um, they've talked about harmonizing some of the rules and, and regulations and some of the permitting and things like that. So if you need to get a business permit or development permit or, or whatever you need in order to take the opportunity forward, it would be consistent across the region. I mean, that's going to take time. You can imagine the number of uh, votes and changes and things that need to take place in order for that to become a reality. But the next step is that this is now in the hands of the bureaucrats rather than the politicians. Is there anything else you expect going forward? Uh, the only thing I can safely predict is we're going to continue to hear this phrase, hunting as a pack. Uh, in the, the video announcing this initiative this week, uh, Mayor Don Ivinson said, with this agreement, we're finally going to hunt as a pack. And it tweaked something in my mind. This has been said at least half a dozen times, maybe more, over the last four or five years by all different kinds of leaders, the mayor of Strathcona County, the CEO of Edmonton Global. They're clearly reading from the same script. So the only thing I can safely predict is we'll hear them say hunt as a pack at least one more time. Well, we love talking points on this podcast. The best part about a talking point is once you get the politicians saying it once, you can play that recording over and over again. It's like they were there every single time. That's radio. Speaking of things that 
sound good when spoken but have no material value, let's talk about the Heritage River nomination for the North Saskatchewan River. Yeah, this is an initiative from Smoky Lake County. So currently there's like 50 kilometers of the North Saskatchewan River near Banff, which is designated as a Canadian Heritage River. And what they want to do is make all 818 kilometers of it in Alberta uh, be designated a Canadian Heritage River. And so they've been out pounding the pavement, getting municipalities that border the river to all sign on. Edmonton, I believe, is the 14th out of 16 communities that have now given its, you know, given their endorsement of this initiative. But that doesn't mean a whole lot. Okay, so I have a question. They're talking about designating this a Canadian Heritage River. I understand it when we designate, like, you know, a 150-year-old building, a heritage building, and you have to preserve the facades and the shingles. Is someone going to demolish the North Saskatchewan River and install a high-rise ocean? Like, what's what's the point here? It's a good question. I'm not really sure I know what the point is. I mean, the uh, Smoky Lake County folks are pushing this as a way to encourage tourism, maybe, and and potentially to argue in favor of greater protections against ecological damage. So, you know, the coal mining uh, discussion that has come up recently is one of the reasons uh, that they're pushing for this. But really, this is a program that just really is about promotion and reminding us that rivers are important to us and have cultural and environmental value, but it doesn't restrict anything. It doesn't commit these municipalities to do anything. It just basically gets a plaque. See, I remember reading the article and I just skimmed through it on my Twitter feed and I saw the proposal to name the North Saskatchewan a Canadian Heritage River. And like my brain stopped for a couple of minutes and we're like, what, what does that mean? Isn't the high level bridge already heritage? I just didn't click to me that you could establish a river as a heritage river because all rivers are heritage rivers. <laughs> like... It, there's there's no newness with this river. And the idea that a heritage river would be more robust against being polluted by a coal mining than a non-heritage river, that doesn't ring true to me either. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a stretch. There are 40 heritage rivers recognized nationally. I didn't know that. 40 of these things. Do do we have a list? Can, can we there, there, you, you can find a list at uh, chrs.ca. Um chrs.ca let's let's go explore let's find some of these heritage rivers alberta let's let's see so we're talking about heritage rivers in alberta and these really enhance the tourism in alberta and one of them that's listed is the clearwater river mac where's that uh this is near the, the border i think right with saskatchewan I was expecting, I don't know what's Clearwater River, but okay, maybe <laughs> maybe the system works. All right, point I, 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 I don't know, actually. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But, uh, well, I mean, all rivers, I suppose, flow into the neighboring provinces, don't they? That's not a very hard thing to imagine. Yeah, I suppose you're right. The nature of a river means it has to eventually get to the ocean, right? Which is also weird about this proposal that like they just want to designate the part that's in Alberta. Like the North Saskatchewan River goes beyond that, right? It's called but... the North Saskatchewan River. <laughs> it's not called the Alberta River. This is true. So if you are not cluing in, dear listener, this proposal is dumb. But I appreciate that they're doing it because, you know, here's the thing. People often think that, you know, I have, I can't make a difference or like there's so many other people doing this. I'm not the best. 
if you pick a niche, if you pick something very specific and say, I want to dedicate my life to this, I guarantee you there are plenty of things that under 10 people in the entire world are or have ever worked <laughs> on this. You can be an international leader in whatever you want to be. And by golly, these people at the CHRS, some of them are international leaders of Heritage River designations and good on them. If you do want to become one of these experts, you know, sometimes a little bit of education can help you get there. And this episode is brought to you by Writing Is Your Nature, a live online masterclass for nature, environment, and outdoor writers created by Pandemic University and the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative. Running May 11th to May 25th, Writing Is Your Nature was designed to sharpen your nonfiction writing through the lens of ecology and conservation. It's free and open to the public to learn from guest professors like Chris Turner, a best-selling author and leading voice on the climate crisis, Sarah Gilman, an MIT Knight Science Journalism Fellow, who will break down how to pitch and get paid to write about science nature stories, and so many more. You can register for the Masterclass Series at PandemicUniversity.com. And in case you're wondering, what the heck is Pandemic University? I never heard this ad before. It's an Alberta-made virtual writing school on a mission to dull the impact of COVID-19 for professional and emerging writers alike. Since April 2020, over 1,500 students have attended from 25 countries. That's, that's a made in Alberta success story if I ever heard one. Taproot is another made in Alberta success story, and we're covering the Climate Now participation this upcoming week. Yes, we've participated in the past, but this has been uh, another participation sprint for Covering Climate Now, which is this international global group of journalistic organizations, media organizations that want to bring attention to the climate crisis. Uh, we've been participating by publishing a chart every single week. So we have a chart of the week feature in the Pulse, and we've dedicated that to covering climate now. So you can find that in the Pulse and on the, the Taproot Edmonton website. And uh, we've also been, of course, writing about this new um, revised community energy transition strategy that City Council uh, approved. And then just today, uh, at the People's Agenda, we heard from Edmontonians about the climate crisis and what they want our upcoming elected officials to do about it. And you can read all about that in Friday's edition of The Pulse. Okay. Uh, as always, you can subscribe at edmonton.taproot.news. But if you're not subscribed and listening to this podcast in your feed, you... You've done something wrong. It's been 126 episodes. Frankly, I'm disappointed. I have to have this conversation with you, but smash that subscribe button. Give us the thumbs up. Ring that bell. Just subscribe in whatever podcast <laughs> feed you have. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.